are listening to the District Church Podcast. To learn more about us, find us online at districtchurch.org. So today I want to talk to you about war, global warming, political polarization, the breakdown of the family, natural disasters, and physical persecution. You guys ready? We're in our series called Seven Days. We're going through the Gospel of Mark, chapters 11 to 16 in the Bible, one of the four gospel accounts that describes the seven days leading up to Easter, seven days that change the world. And you can see from this slide that each day um, of the seven days that leads up to Easter, we kicked off with Palm Sunday a couple weeks ago where Pastor Kevin talked about uh, Jesus coming into Jerusalem. And then last week we heard from Pastor Chuck who talked about when Jesus curses the fig tree, when he goes into the temple and he overturns the table. Well, today we are talking about signs of the end times, which is known as Holy Tuesday. Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem and the tension is rising. Like you can feel it. If you live in the city at that time, you can feel it. Jesus is not playing games. He's not pulling punches. He's telling people it like it is. No matter how powerful they are, no matter how religious they are, he's cutting right to the chase. In our text we heard the last five verses of our text, but the text is really all of chapter 13 today. So you'll have to go back and read verses 1 to 37. Jesus is leaving the temple, right? Because that's where, it's just where he was on money. He's leaving the temple where he just overturned tables. And one of his disciples, who's not named, is in all of the architecture of the temple, the massive stones. Um, you can see a picture here of the Western Wall today. This is a contemporary picture of uh, the, the western wall of the, the temple ruins. Um, the temple is now, uh, it fell actually in, eight, in 70 AD, 40 years after Jesus said this. But imagine on top of this, a beautiful temple with some stones that were 94 feet long and some columns that were as, fit, as high as 54 feet tall. Uh, it had been built 500 years ago before Jesus, 500 years before Jesus' time in the time of Ezra. But King Herod had recently renovated it. And this western wall was part of that recent renovation. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know this is all really impressive, but it's about to crumble. And then this leads the four disciples who are named, Peter, James, uh, John, and Andrew are named in the text. They ask Jesus privately, can you give us like the inside track on when this is going to happen? Like, can you give us the intelligence brief? We've been with you long enough to, like, clear the Jesus security clearance, right? Three years? Like, we should have gotten through. Sometimes it takes that long in the city, right, to get the security clearance. But they've been with them for three years. Like, give us the inside track. Then Jesus launches into an extensive message about how they can discern the signs of not only when the temple was going to be destroyed, but when Jesus was going to return again for the second time, the second coming. And here in our text, Jesus is speaking to the tendency that the disciples had that we have today, which is to procrastinate, to put something off, right? Do Monday, to most of us, means do Monday, D-O Monday, right? Like we just think, okay, I'm gonna do something at the last point possible. And we all 
think of creative ways to justify our procrastination. And sometimes it happens not just in like our weekly workflow, but it happens in like really big decisions in life, like what career to pursue or whether to get married or whether to have kids or um, whether to save for a down payment on a house or whether to save for retirement. And we think that by keeping our options open and de- delaying these decisions that we'll, that we'll be happier. But research actually shows that procrastinating on these big decisions actually makes us more unhappy, causes us to live with more regrets later. And in our passage today, Jesus is helping us discern the biggest deadline of all, which is when he returns to earth to make all things new. And his big message is this, watch out, be prepared, and don't let him find you asleep. When he comes back, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He knows he only has a few more days with them. And so he's driving home the message and he's trying to help them live with more urgency and more discernment. Urgency, because the human tendency for all of us is towards complacency and procrastination. That's just how we're wired. And discernment. Because when things get really tense, people start saying crazy things, right? When things get crazy around us, it's easy to start seeing things through a human point of view rather than from a godly point of view. Pastor Kevin talked about this a couple weeks ago on Palm Sunday, that, that when Jesus came into Jerusalem, everyone was adorning him with palm branches saying, you know, Hosanna. And the highest welcoming, you're going to be the one to rescue us from Rome. You're going to be the military and political leader that we had longed for. But what people couldn't understand at the time was that Jesus was designing a rescue which was much deeper and longer than what the Romans could offer or what what they could offer to help save them from the Romans. He was planning a deeper rescue. But people had to see things from an eternal point of view and not just a human short-term point of view. The same thing can happen to us in 2024. If we're not careful, we will only seek short-term solutions to the problems that we see in the world today. And, And this is when the political narratives, which are most dominant in our life, these are what are getting pushed to us on social media, this is when the political narrative of the the far secular uh, left or the far secular right can become more dominant in our belief system than biblical truth. And the importance of biblical truth is it helps us put our life in eternal perspective to be able to see and discern what's going on around us from a bigger picture. And this is so important because if you live right here in the city, this city, the pace of this city, it's like a grind. Some of you guys saw the the article this week, DC, the most overworked city in the nation. Some of you guys saw that. There's so many belief systems, the economic pressure to just survive and pay your rent, the political pressure, all of this activity can blind us to having an eternal perspective. And when you forget eternity and then something difficult happens in your life, you do one of two things. You either play the victim or you play the savior. You play the victim or you play the savior. You either make everything somebody else's fault 
Or, and this is a lot of us here in DC, you feel overly responsible and try to save everybody. But either way, it's the secular worldview because it's all about you. It's all about what you can do. It's all about self. But a biblical worldview is shaped around God's purposes and his desires and how we align ourselves to what's on God's heart. That's what Mark chapter 13 is all about. Living life with the end in mind. Living life with the end in mind, with urgency, with discernment. This section is called the Olivet Discourse. And uh, it's called Olivet because Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives with his disciples opposite the temple when he gave this talk. Here's a picture from the beautiful Mount of Olives looking at the, um, would that be the, that would be the sunset, I think. Not the sunrise coming in from the west, is that right? Come on, Amy, you're our resident expert here. But I'm pretty sure that's a sunset, but it looks like a sunrise. Um, but you see the, um, the temple's actually in the middle, the temple grounds. There's now um, a mosque, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, on the temple grounds. That explains a lot of the global tension uh, that, that exists in the world today. Um, but, but he's sitting there with his disciples overlooking the temple. This is before it's destroyed. It's Tuesday, and Jesus shares with the disciples Seven signs of the end times that I want to share with you. Seven, seven ways that we will know that we're living in the last days and that Jesus' return is imminent. I actually think that Jesus wants us all to believe that we're living in the last days. That's a huge point of Mark chapter 13, which is repeated in the other gospels as well. He wants us to believe that he's coming back in our lifetime. And so he, and the reason he wants you to believe that is because he wants you to le- live your life with such urgency and watchfulness. This is not a generation for complacency. This is not a time for complacency. This is not a time to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. We must prepare ourselves for that glorious day because it's going to be a glorious day for the church when Jesus returns. Because he's going to set all things new. He's going to make all things new, right? He's going to set up his eternal kingdom here on earth. We know the end of the story. He kicks Satan's butt. Like Satan loses. We win. The church of Jesus Christ wins. And so, and so what, what we're realizing is like, okay, well, we knew that Satan didn't have ultimate authority in our lives because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And we, we wrestle against all these temptations, but we know when we have the Holy Spirit living in us and Jesus has saved us from our sins, we know that the devil does not have authority in our life. But the reality is that the devil is on the loose in the world. And there's things that the devil is doing in the world that is beyond our control. And so the good news is when Jesus comes back and sets up his glorious kingdom here on earth is that he's going to kick the devil's butt in the world. (laughs) He's going to make all things new. And so as much and as hard as we're working right now to do things like eradicate the need for foster care in the first place, as hard as we're working to do things like build affordable housing, as hard as we're working to do things like address human trafficking and alleviate poverty, as hard as we're working to make something like abortion unnecessary or rare, as hard as we would work to do all these things as the church, 
We can work and raise tons of money and give and recruit all these volunteers, but we're not going to be able to do it all. We need to long for the return of Jesus. When we do these things, we're pointing to a coming kingdom when God will make all things new. You guys ready? We're going to go through the seven signs, okay? Um, Seven signs that we're living in the last day. The first one is deception. Deception. This is about false prophets. Starting in verse 5, Jesus says, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. The word deceive here is the Greek word planao. Planao. And the word planao means to wonder or to go off course. To wonder or to go off course. Satan's strategy is one of deception. And he will use people that walk and talk like Christians to get you to go off course. One of the misnomers is that people abandon their faith suddenly. Like they just walk out of church suddenly, never to walk in again. Usually people that walk out of church in the middle of service are just going to the bathroom, <laughs> right? Or their, their alarm went off on their car and, or they got to go check on their kid. That's typically what happens. It, it, it's usually when people leave the church for good, it's usually very gradual. Nobody wanders quickly. You don't drift off course suddenly. It happens gradually, so gradually that you barely notice. It's like you're out in your boat on sea and you just are like, this is so, this is so beautiful. I'm just sitting here. I'm just going to pray. I'm just close my eyes and pray. And then like a minute, a few minutes later, you open your eyes and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so far offshore. My group is over here. And you're like, I didn't even do anything. I just drifted. Jesus says many false prophets will come in his name and claim that they are the Messiah. And he says that they will not only be in the church, but that they will succeed in their efforts. Meaning that they will successfully draw even Christians away from their professed beliefs. People who have walked with God even for decades will be deceived. And there's a long list. It's sad actually. There's a long list of people who have been a part of our church over the years, who have been a part of um, our sister churches throughout the city who share our same uh, biblical beliefs, people who were very active in our church or other churches who, who drifted off course. And, and it, it's not that they were false prophets themselves. It's that, that they were deceived by false prophets. And they followed the same predictable pattern of not being able to discern between a biblical worldview and a secular worldview. And they eventually deconstructed their faith to the point that there was nothing left over other than a thin veneer of therapeutic moral deism that names God in a very generic sense, but really is all about materialism is really all about this world. It's really all about self and self-care. But it's still dressed up in like a little bit of spiritual language. It, it doesn't have the Holy Spirit at its core. It has self at its core. And here's the thing. Just because the drifting is gradual doesn't mean that it's not serious. Some of the most deadly cancers come on gradually in our bodies undetected. And throughout church history, It was a big deal if someone renounced their faith. They were called an apostate. 
and talked about publicly, not as a way to shame them, but as a way to warn others of the way that the enemy deceives, that whoever thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. This issue of deception is so serious that Jesus comes back to it later in this chapter. He double clicks on it. He says this, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. Next slide, uh, Mark 13, 21. For false messiahs and false prophets, verse 22, will appear and perform signs and wonders. False prophets, like some of them will have spiritual gifts and it will manifest in the natural realm. And those will be used to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So he says, so be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. Just because someone publishes a book under a, a Christian publishing name doesn't mean that the content of that book is biblical or Christian. Most, I'm learning this in the, in the publishing world um, as I'm trying to still finish my book and get published. I'm learning that almost none of the Christian uh, publishers, there's a few, but almost none of them are owned uh, by Christian ministries. They're all owned by like, like Fox or ABC or some group, a secular group. So what they're doing is they're marketing to Christians, but there's no like theological group that's trying to discern. It's really about does this book sell copies? I, I don't really care what it says as long as it sells copies. So you can't just because something has a Christian publisher, you can't just believe everything that it says. Just because uh, something is listed uh, in the podcast under Christianity or spirituality doesn't mean that they're teaching biblical truth, right? And, and it's easy for us, like some of us who are like my age or older, like, Aaron, you're being a little aggressive. Like, shouldn't our approach to the culture be more like cultural engagement? And like, let's try to just like create like good artifacts and people are going to just see our artwork and come to faith in Jesus. No, no, no. This culture today is evangelizing the church more than the church is evangelizing the culture. And if you don't, if you don't think that way, it's probably because you're not on social media and you don't have a teenager who's getting, who, or teenagers or young adults say, we're getting pushed on, on reels, on shorts, on TikTok, people who are claiming to preach the truth of Jesus, but are speaking lies that are causing people to go off course. We have to be discerning, church. We have to be discerning. And I'm not here to be a culture warrior. I'm not trying to here to say, keep up your defense and like, let's like go to war. Like, no, no, no. Like, I'm trying to help us to just be more discerning because I've pastored in this city for 16 years and I've seen too many people wander from the faith that they first proclaimed when they came to the city. And I made a commitment to be more clear because my responsibility is to faithfully proclaim the word of God to you and care for your souls. That's my responsibility as a pastor. That's what I have to give account to for God one day. Not how popular I was, not how much conflict I avoided, but did I, did I try best to discern what the word of God says and accurately communicate it in love to our generation? Because here's the deal. And I, I refuse, as we, we're launching district, district youth next week, we're praying for middle schoolers and high schoolers all throughout this city to experience a move of God in their generation. Like you can't study a history of revival and not see students and young people who are a part of it. So we're believing God. The 20 youth that are there right now are like, I'm inviting my friends. I'm getting people here. And, and my, I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm a parent of teenagers. 
And I'm like, am I, what they're dealing with in their classrooms, what they're dealing with in their schools today, I'm like, am I gonna ask them to be more bold than I am as a pastor? Like, are they gonna all talk about it for hours on social media every week and then we fail to have the courage to talk about it on Sundays or in our life groups? Yeah, it might get a little uncomfortable, but I wanna have a kind of faith that not only stands the test of time for me, but is passed on to the next generation. This is what we're contending for, guys. Ah, so be on your guard, Jesus says. Be discerning. Test the spirits. Does it align with the word of God? Does it align, is it consistent with the historic creeds of the church? That's the first sign, deception. The second one, I promise I'll go quicker on these next ones. The next one's destruction. Uh, destruction is the next one. Wars and conflict, right? I mean, just the ones that America's involved in. Russia, Ukraine, the war in, in Gaza, the growing regional conflict in the Middle East that's targeted U.S. troops, uh, ships being targeted in the Red Sea by Houthi rebels, ongoing threats from Iran and North Korea and China. It, it was just a couple years ago that we pulled out of a 20-year war in Afghanistan that was happening at the same time. The, fir the first uh, about eight years of that, there was also a war in Iraq. Jesus says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. One of the big myths of secular culture is this idea of progress. That with more education and more scientific breakthrough and more technological breakthrough, that we will progress as humanity. And it is true. Like there are some major medical uh, advancements, technological advancements that we're seeing in unprecedented ways in our generation. But what happens is that we think because there's breakthrough in these other areas that we're experiencing breakthrough like morally and spiritually. And like those two things don't go together, right? And so, and so yet, so this conversation about wars, all the wars, I just named the ones like the U.S. is connected with, but there's a lot of wars going on in the world that we're not connected with. But I think they reveal this biblical truth of human depravity, that, that we're not as advanced as we like to think that we are. Like we are still capable of doing really evil and awful things to one another. Like, like the same sinful nature that was in Cain that killed Abel, that same sinful nature is in each of us. Help us, Jesus. Help us to grow and not just demonize people to the point that we will take their life. Destruction and war is the second sign. The third sign of the end times is disasters. Jesus says there will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. We have any mothers here? Do we have any mothers here? All right. You know what? You know about birth pains, right? That labor pains increase in intensity and pain with time. Anybody here um, ever been in an earthquake before? Like even a small one. So maybe half. Okay. So it was August 23rd, 2011 was the earthquake in D.C. I was um, just walking two blocks from here on, on 14th Street, and I was walking above the subway, and I had the shaking, so I thought it was the subway. I thought maybe a train was derailed, but I was on the phone with Amy, and she was back at our house on Gerard Street, and she was standing on, like, the toilet fixing something. It was like the whole house shook. She's like, did you feel that? We're like, what's going on? You just don't expect an earthquake in D.C., but you know that the Washington Monument was um, uh, had, had stuff happen to it, and then also the, the National Cathedral. That's why there's still scaffolding on the, around the National Cathedral is because of the earthquake in 2011. So 
um, earthquakes, Jesus says, but also famines. Luke's version um, of this account of what Jesus shares, he adds pestilences, which means uh, plagues, like global plagues. Um, And then what about things like droughts, hurricanes, and floods? A lot of these lead to famine and the loss of life. And unfortunately, the political narrative around natural disasters today is that we really only have two options. Like everything is caused by climate change or climate change is not even real. It's become so politicized and it shouldn't be for followers of Jesus because our starting point is not the political narrative of 2024. Our starting point is Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We are to steward God's creation. We should be known as the most engaged people in reducing the impact of disasters that lead to the loss of life. Some of you might say, well, if Jesus is coming back in our lifetime, why would we care about that, right? Why do we care about the ozone layer if Jesus is coming back, right? Well, first off, a big point of this passage is that we don't, none of us know when he's coming back exactly, like the date. Like, and if any of you think you know, you're lying because Jesus says he didn't even know and the angels didn't know, only his father in heaven knew, all right? So we don't know. Jesus could tarry beyond our lifetime. But if he does come soon, the Bible is very clear in Mark 13 how he's gonna return. He's gonna return in the clouds. In other words, it's gonna be obvious. And when he comes, this is a key point, when Jesus returns, he's not coming back to blow up the world. He's coming back to renew the world to bring healing and restoration. Revelation says he's coming to make all things new. So my sense is that the best practice is to have God's earth, God's house in order when he returns. And I don't think that's a liberal position. I think that's a biblical position. Stewardship is one of the most important and dominant themes in scripture. In fact, if we had time to read Matthew's account of Jesus' same sermon on the end times, Matthew took a little more pages, 28 chapters instead of 16 that Mark did. Well, if you read Matthew 24 and 25, it's the signs of the end times. And then Jesus ends the same sermon from Mark 13 with four parables. One about the 10 virgins, one about the uh, parable of the talents. um, And then there's the one of the sheep and the goats. Whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Right, so people, why do you, you know, Jesus coming back in our lifetime, why do you care about the poor? Jesus says, no, you'll see, you'll see my face in the poor. This is about your own spiritual development, right? But the parable of the talents, you know, God, God gave some, you know, one, five, ten, and, and, and one of them, just like, they got scared. This, this teaching, parable of the talents, is in the context of the end times. And some people are like, well, Jesus, you're coming back in our lifetime, so, so I'm just going to go bury my treasure. I'm just going to have all this fear. And he's like, no, 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 no. I've given you resources, invest it, grow your business, create wealth, advance the kingdom of God. Don't just be like, oh, I'm coming back one day. No, steward what God has given you. The fact that Jesus is coming back soon is a reason to move towards stewardship, towards evangelism, towards responsibility, rather than away from it. That's the message. So we've got deception, destruction, disasters. I'm gonna roll with these. The fourth sign Jesus gives us uh, is danger. This is physical persecution. He says, you must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. Whew. 
persecution is not going to just happen out in the world. It's going to happen in the church. And we see today 50 countries of the world that are experiencing persecution for their Christian faith, or really for, for different faiths, but especially Christians are being persecuted in 50 different countries where they cannot freely worship, that their, their lives are threatened if, if they worship. And that's religious freedom is something that we should stand for as a church. But this is, this is um, increasingly happening in the, uh, let me finish this, this scripture. So he says, you're going to be flogged in the synagogues. He says, on account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And so, so this, this, this danger, this physical persecution, and I think it's easy for us in the West to be like, oh, we don't experience that as much, not, not as big of a deal. Um, but I think that we're experiencing rising tension between the secular worldview and the biblical worldview. It's like, it's just increasing in our time. And so even here in our city, like I, I believe that we as the church should be like the best friends of government as possible. Like we should be serving the guy, asking the mayor, what can we do? Asking the city council, asking like, what can we, like your job is hard. Like running for public office, working in government is noble work. Like it's not easy. It's long hours, it's thankless work. People could make way more money in the corporate sector. And, and so we need to honor, we need to, we say, how can we help you solve the problems of the city? Because we both have incentive to do that. And so that's the posture of us as pastors in the church. But we've even noticed, a lot of us pastors in the city, many that have pastored here for 50 years, a growing tension between government and churches. And it comes up in little ways right now. It's like you're just trying to get like parking permit or you're trying to get permits to do a renovation or whatever. And they're just, it's, just, it's just harder um, than, than it used to be. M many Christian uh, leaders at the national level think that churches may lose their tax-exempt status in our lifetime if we do not subscribe or even champion the secular view around gender and sexuality. That's, like, that's like a real fear in our lifetime. The second thing Jesus says is that you will stand before governors and kings. You're going to stand before governors and kings, he says, and it's not for a photo op. It's not like to take a selfie and be like, look who I, I met today. No, Jesus is going to put you before kings and governors to be a witness to them of your faith. And, and it's going to take boldness and courage because they have the power to arrest you or put you in jail. And so the question is, are you going to testify to the same faith that you testify here on Sundays? Is your discipleship depth going to be deep enough that it's not only integrated with your everyday life, but when the fire comes, you will not renounce your faith in Jesus. You will speak before the most powerful people in your life and have the opportunity to witness to your boss, to the mayor, to the governor, maybe even before the president. During the Decian persecution in 2050 AD, all citizens of the Roman Empire were required to make public sacrifices to the, to the um, traditional gods. And the Christians who didn't make a public sacrifice to those gods were considered lapsed or what they called lapsy. And they would be targeted and even killed. For most of us today, it's not about risking our life, but it's about risking our reputation. Are you willing to lose your public platform for your faith in Jesus? Are you willing to get canceled on social media? Are you willing to lose your job to stay true to your faith? Not because you're unwise and immature online 
and unloving online, but because you are not ashamed of the gospel. You're not ashamed of Jesus Christ. You're not ashamed of his word. You're, not, you're willing to confess your love for the Father, your love for the Son, your love for the Holy Spirit, and you believe that he's active and living today. You know, even though most of us in the West are, are, are not dealing with, with death threats for our faith, what I need you to know, church, is that there is very likely, like a very, very likely chance that you will experience increasing opposition for your faith in the years to come. I just need you to know that because you need to be prepared. And the good news about this is there's not going to be much room for lukewarm Christianity. Like you'll either have to be hot or cold. Like choose this day who you will serve. And, and it, it, it excites me because that's when you look at through the history of the church, that's when the church is at its best and most purified. Not when we cower, but when we contend for the faith that was handed down to us. It, it's a good thing when being a Christian actually means something, when it costs something, when you make a decision for Christ in here, knowing that it will not likely increase your social standing out there. So, so, so you're not coming forward to make a decision for Christ and be baptized because of a religious tradition or because of a family expectation, but because a real work of the Spirit is happening in your life. Persecution does not relieve us from our responsibility to share our faith. It reminds us that we need to be even more bold in our faith knowing that we are living in the last days and we cannot allow the culture to shape us more than God's truth. But then listen to this promise, verse 11. He says, whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry. Somebody say, do not worry. worry. About what to say. Notice that he says, do not worry beforehand. I love that. He's like, Jesus knows that the number one fear that humans have, even before like snakes, is public speaking. And he's like, Don't worry about preparing your speech, right? Um, He says, just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Anybody ever been in a situation like that where you didn't have the words, but the Holy Spirit spoke through you? Jesus says it this way in in Luke's version, uh, the same passage, Luke 21, 14. He says, but make up your mind. Turn to your neighbor and say, make up your mind. He says, make up your mind not to worry beforehand about how you will defend yourself. For I will give you words and wisdom that, oh, I love this, that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. And the book of Acts is a a fulfillment of this promise. They were given boldness to speak to powerful people who wanted to kill them. They kept on preaching. They saw their friend Stephen murdered, stoned. They kept on preaching. Tertullian said this in the second century, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And in the 20th century, there were 45 million seeds that died for their Christian faith that have helped seed the growth of the church. And even today, hundreds and hundreds lose their life every day for their faith in Jesus. Perseverance is the proof that our profession of Christ is real. Revivalist Vance Havner says it this way. Um, This is a mouthful. He says this, faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. 
We need to have a faith that can stand the test of time, that can withstand danger, that can withstand financial hardship, the loss of relationship, the loss of reputation, and even physical persecution. Jesus says you have to lose your life in order to find it. Danger is actually an opportunity to deepen our faith. The fifth sign is that the church will deliver, this is the one I had the hardest time with on the D, deliver the gospel to the ends of the earth, right? To all people groups. Jesus is giving his disciples a glimpse of the coming fruit that they would experience in the years ahead, that the gospel would go to the Gentiles. He says this, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Matthew's version says it this way, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. One sign of the end times is that the gospel is getting to all corners of the earth, to every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. Some of you were with us in November when we announced that we're supporting an initiative called Illuminations that is helping get the Bible translated in every language in our lifetime. And I'm excited to share that earlier this month, our church, through a result of your guys' generosity, made a $50,000 gift through Multiply uh, to sponsor a contemporary translation of the Bible into Kurundi, which is the language that's spoken by 12 million plus people in Burundi. That's in East Africa, considered one of the poorest, if not the poorest nation in the world. And so we, we get to bless um, all these. Th- th- there's only one translation of the Bible uh, into Kurundi, and it's from 1960-something. And it's kind of like having a King James Version, but half the population of Burundi is like under 18. And they're going to get a Bible to be able to hear it in their generation's language. We're living in unprecedented times where the gospel could really get to every people group in our lifetime. And we need to pray that God uses people like Pastor Diodene to continue to preach the word of God so that people will hear the, hear the word of God, that leaders will come to faith, indigenous leaders, and they'll rise up and they'll share the word of God in their village and in their part of Burundi and uh, throughout the earth. Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria. That's where we don't wanna go, but God's calling us and to the ends of the earth. Holy Spirit will come upon you. So God, we pray that you would allow our generation to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. The sixth sign, and I'll go to these last two really quick, is division in the family, family breakdown. We see this all over, uh, especially Western culture today, where we put our own individual needs above our family needs. And Jesus says, brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. This is dark, guys. That there's not just division in the family, but there's death in the family. There's not just domestic, or there's not just violence, but there's domestic violence. And this is the, this is the tactic of the enemy to attack the most fundamental institution of society, which is the family. Because if you destroy the family, you destroy a community. You destroy a school system. You destroy um, a city. And you eventually destroy a culture, and a nation. So the enemy wants to cause division in our families. The last sign I want to share with you from the passage Jesus says is that you will be detested by everyone. The word detest here is the word hate. It means to curse or to denounce. And it, it means to feel intense violence towards someone. 
It doesn't mean that you're acting on that violence, but like you're murdering them in your heart or they're murdering you in their heart. Jesus says everyone, not like a few people, not like a few haters, everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. You have to get ready for times to get lonelier in the days ahead. Because if, you, if your primary need is to be liked and affirmed for your beliefs, then this is difficult time to live in. You have to be willing to say, though none go with me, I still will follow. Severe trials have a way of sifting true Christians from fair, fair weather Christians. And Jesus says, he who stands firm to the end will be saved. This ability to stand is not what earns our salvation. Let me be very clear. This ability to stand is not what earns our salvation. It merely proves that our salvation was true from the beginning. Don't be surprised, church, when your faith is challenged and tested and opposed. Jesus said that would happen. These are the seven signs he gives us in Mark 13. And then he ends simply by saying, be on your guard, be alert, and keep watch. In other words, don't let him catch you sleeping. He's saying, just like you spend time preparing for your wedding, prepare for the return of Christ. Just like you spend so much time and energy and resources preparing for the birth of a child, prepare for the return of Christ. Just like you spend so much time preparing and getting that degree to prepare yourself for that career that God's called you to, prepare yourself for the return of Christ. Just like you have to work 10, 15 years to prepare to save for a down payment in DC, prepare for the return of Christ. Do not procrastinate preparing for the most important thing that will happen. And we don't know, none of us know when it will happen, but we know that today is one day closer than yesterday was to the return of Christ. So prepare yourself by studying God's word. Prepare yourself by spending time in his presence. Prepare yourself by aligning yourself to his purposes for your life. I want us as a church to be a church that is ready for the return of Jesus, that longs for the return of Jesus, that knows that the story that he's writing is much better than the story we're trying to write. So we say, come Lord Jesus, say that with me. Say, come Lord Jesus, come back for your church. And when you return, we pray that you would find us as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. We pray that we would be holy and blameless in your sight. Amen.